Welcome and greetings, career-minded superstars. You are listening to the exclusive Career Coach, your podcast for all things career. And I'm Lisa Edwards, the indispensable career coach for superstars just like you. Now let's dig into this week's topic, shall we? Go from dragging yourself to work each day to finding a job you love. The Career Spring program is for high achieving and ambitious mid level professionals like you who are looking for a job that uses your zone of genius, recognizes your value, and pays you what you're worth. If you're ready to learn more, schedule a complimentary consult using the link to my calendar in the show notes. Be sure to follow me on Exclusive Career Coaching on Facebook. Lisa Edwards on LinkedIn and Lisa.Edwards on Instagram. Greetings. How are you doing? I hope you're having a fantastic summer. I hope you're having a fantastic 2021 as we slowly come out of the weird cocoon that was 2020 and that to some degree your life is getting back to normal, whatever that means for you. And today we're going to talk about high-impact ways to take responsibility for your own success. So I've I've told this story before, and it, it is this. I don't solicit speakers, guests for this show. I never have. And they come to me, and I get a lot of folks who the, it's just not a good fit. They clearly haven't researched the podcast. They don't know what we're about. And when I find someone who really excites me, my thought is, if it excites me, it's going to excite you guys, and we're going to have a great time. And such is the case today with my guest, Ed Everts, who I'm going to have introduce himself in just a moment. When I saw this topic, I was immediately intrigued, largely because, and I'm sure we'll talk about this some more, I'm hugely into self-empowerment, and I find it cringeworthy when people don't realize how much power they have in their own work environments to create their own success, and they want to put that off onto their boss or their coworkers or their company rather than taking the responsibility that is theirs. And so, first of all, thank you for being on the podcast, Ed. Thank you, Lisa. I'm thrilled to be here with you. So why don't you tell the folks about yourself and let's get this ball rolling. Sure. Well, I'm a 25-year corporate veteran. I spent a number of years in retailing and then business-to-business services. I left the corporate world in 2008 and transitioned to my own independent practice, providing leadership coaching. Since that time, about 13 years, I've evolved the business And I now focus on three areas, one being leadership coaching, which to some degree includes career coaching, team coaching, because my clients also need help in ensuring their teams are productive and effective, and also business strategy. So I work with smaller businesses who are evolving in ways that they had not evolved in the past, either due to an acquisition or new geography or new products and services, and just don't know how to do it and what steps to take and where to put their time and energy. And so I help them with that. Additionally, I've written two books, one that you've referred to today, Drive Your Career, and my first book, Raise Your Visibility and Value. And I am also a podcast host. So I host a podcast called Be Brave at Work. Be brave at work. I like that. And and if you are helping companies to navigate change, have you been doing that through the pandemic as well as people are trying to figure out what their business will look like going forward? Interestingly, I have three corporate clients. And so these are a little bit different than one-on-one individual clients. And each of them navigated the coronavirus period brilliantly. One is an insurance company 
or towns and cities. So of course, those towns and cities are always going to need insurance. And so they had a very negligible impact to their revenue and business model. A second client provides laboratory services to the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> industry that did well during the pandemic. It's the pharmaceutical industry. And so their business actually equaled to prior years, if not grew. And then my third client is a nonprofit that services the financial industry based in Washington, D.C. And likewise, they did not have any significant deterioration. You know, most of them, I think the biggest impact is they had to move from live connection and live visits to virtual. But I think we all did that reasonably well in transitioning. And to some degrees, we'll continue to do it because people liked it a lot. I think it's interesting. We we talk about the companies that struggle so much. That's been kind of the focus in the news, the companies that have either gone under or struggled to stay afloat during the pandemic. But I like to think about the, the example I always use is Zoom, which is not coincidentally how we're recording this podcast today. It makes me laugh to think about this boardroom somewhere where they got the Zoom leadership together back about March of 2020. And they said, so... <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> so that's a whole different set of problems when you're a Zoom or an Amazon, or I like to use the, also the, the example of there's a hair care company that mails it to you. It's called Madison Reed, and they definitely were a winner in 2020. So I, it, it's a whole nother set of problems, but it's all a navigation issue, isn't it? It is. And you know, one of the things that you're referencing is scale. And so even companies that are doing very well and growing very quickly. And there are a number of examples of companies that grew so quickly they couldn't handle it. And they ended up having to cut back significantly or even fail in their business model because they grew too quickly due to being successful so fast. Yes, I listened to some business podcasts like that. And there are some really noteworthy examples of companies that they just didn't have the right leadership at the top of the company, and they just didn't know how to scale properly. They didn't use their investors' money well, and it, it, there was just no course for their navigation at all. Well, they say growing quickly is a good problem to have, but whether it's good or bad, it's still a problem. So, <laughs> you know, you've got to have good leadership. You have to have good technology. You have to have good people in order to help you navigate it successfully. And Sometimes you do, sometimes you plan it and hold its hand and make sure that you can get it to where you want it to go. And other times it's like the bull in the china shop and it just doesn't work. So we're talking today about ways to take responsibility for your own success. And as I said at the outset, the reason, one of the reasons that this topic really resonated with me is that I'm a VIP on a program where women can get online and talk about their issues and what they're dealing with at work. And so much of what they're saying, the the subtext is, I have no control over any of this. And i toxic. Oh my gosh, if I had a nickel for every time someone said they worked in a toxic environment. And while we can't change our boss, we can't change the company, we really can't change anyone We have else, we have complete agency over ourselves and what we make this whole situation mean. And so, Anything about how to drive your own success is of interest to me. So tell us, what was the impetus for writing this book and, and who is, is it for? Well, this might be the magical reason that you and I were drawn together, Lisa, because <laughs> you know, I too am a believer that life is a never-ending series of choices, and some of the choices we have to make are easy, 
And some of the choices we have to make are hard, but regardless of whether they're hard or easy, they're still choices. And you also have to be empowered. You need to be a person who drives your career, which means you have insights and observations into where you want to go and where you want to be. And I don't mean literally like, hey, in five years, I want to be in this job at this company in this city. But you know, you need to know what you want to do and where you want to do it. And because our environment is so fast paced and so and people are so busy and many environments, as you described, might be toxic, we don't spend time doing it. And next thing you know, five years have gone by, seven years have gone by, and we wake up and say, why am I here? What am I doing? Am I enjoying myself, et cetera? So I spent a number of years working with clients globally, and I began to observe about five or six years ago that there were certain stories that I would share with these clients that seemed to influence everyone. And whether you were a corporate president or a supervisor, these stories seem to influence or impact you in, in, in different ways. And so I think I had one of those shower moments where I said, hey, I think I might have a great idea. Why don't I pay attention to what these ideas are that I'm finding myself repeating on a regular basis, write them down, and then see if I can expand on them so I can help others. And so, as you know, and the work that you do, you work one-on-one -on -one with people. Another way to connect with people endlessly is to write and get it out there where people who you haven't even met can read your ideas and your experiences and hopefully influence them in possible ways. And so that's why I wrote Drive Your Career. I think that's so true about podcasting too, right? So I've told the story on this podcast before that I have a little bit of a Rain Man mentality about certain things. And I had decided with absolutely no basis, in fact, this is going back to probably 2015, 2016, that it cost $5,000 to podcast. That's just That was just a random number in my head. And just like Rain Man, like $5,000. And so I was listening to another coach's podcast one day, and I don't even remember what the topic was, but it was urging us to question things and look at our assumptions. And so that was the first assumption I tackled. And as you well know, it doesn't cost $5,000 to podcast. And that opened that door for me. And I have had so many people, as I'm sure you have, who have come to you and said, I've gotten so much value from your podcast. We've never met. I didn't even know they existed in the world, but I was, I was impacting them in a very meaningful way. And that's so fulfilling. It is the ultimate thrill where somebody that you've never met <laughs> says, hey, I read your book or I listened to your podcast. And my goal really isn't to change their life, but if they could leave a podcast experience or put the book down with even one idea or one or two things that they could do a little bit differently at work or in a relationship that helps it, to me, that's a huge win. Absolutely. So we've got these ways to take responsibility. And I think you go over nine of them in the book. Am I right on that? Yes. Okay. So let's start with the number one way that you want to share with the listeners that they can really get into the driver's seat of their own career and their own success. Yeah. You know, there are nine ideas. I did not put them in any type of order of importance because I do think all nine of them impact different people in different ways. But the first idea I think impacts most people, which is have a positive relationship with your boss. Mm. And as I've traveled my client engagement over the last 13 years, you know, I would say, Lisa, that 85% of the clients I have worked with wish they had a more positive relationship with their boss. And I don't mean that they're best friends and they go out for margaritas on Friday nights, but that they could be a little bit more positive. 
and really weren't doing anything to ensure that they were more positive. So I talk a little bit about that because this is something that happened with the vast majority of clients that I worked with. And I provided some ideas and thoughts, happy to share a couple that people can do in order to have a more positive relationship with their boss. One idea, and this is a conversation that is not happening in companies around the globe, is to find time to speak with your boss and not during a one-on-one, but really specifically to find time to talk about what your boss's goals and aspirations are. Because you as an employee in their work group or at their company, you're there to help the company, but also help your boss. Because if your boss is successful, you know, everyone who works for your boss is going to be more or less successful. So, you know, it's important that you know what your boss's goals and objectives are. We spend endless hours at work talking about our own and our own MBOs and goals and what we want to do, et cetera. But, you know, I don't think enough people are curious about what your boss's goals and aspirations are. And I know if I were a boss and all my employees knew what my goals and aspirations were for the company, for our work group over the next year, next couple of years, I'd feel a heck of a lot better that people knew this and could help me in positive ways. Exactly. I always think that my job as an employee, one of them, is to make my boss look good. And so I have to know what is going to make him look good, i.e. what are his goals? Where does he want to get? And my goal is to support that. And, you know, what's the saying about a rising tide lifts all boats or something along those lines? So if I'm lifting him up, I'm also lifting up myself. I'm lifting up my coworkers and really everyone around me. Wouldn't you agree? I do. And I know you don't mean it this way. This is not an effort to be disingenuous where you're saying, hey, I want to help my boss look good. And that's mm-hmm. going to be, it's, it's a little bit deeper in respect to really ensuring that they know that people working for them are all working in the same direction and are helping us accomplish whatever it is that we want to accomplish. And it won't happen unless you ask the question. Unfortunately, really, bosses should be out there telling people on a regular basis what their goals and objectives are, but it's just not part of our culture. And so that's why I recommend in the book as an idea that you find time to talk about it. The second idea is to spend a little time with your boss asking what you can do yourself differently in order to be more effective. I call this the million-dollar question, and I think people should be asking this of their boss, of peers, of subordinates, of clients, of vendors, not often, maybe once or twice a year. Hey, what's one or two things I could be doing a little differently to be more effective? When somebody's asked that question, the relationship builds, their influence with you builds, you have much deeper and better conversation. So I think being curious about your boss's goals and objectives, and then asking them for thoughts and ideas on things you could be doing differently to be more effective helps you have a more positive relationship with your boss. And we often don't want to ask those questions because we fear hearing the answer, right? We we have in our head, there's going to be some, you know, they're going to say, well, the way you can help me is to be a completely different human being than you are. And that's not going to happen. What we're going to do is, in all probability, is fine tune what's already working well. Our boss is going to give us a little bit of course correction and hopefully some valuable feedback, but it's not going to open the door to some sort of, you know, I'm picturing the gladiators in the lion's den when they let the lion <laughs> lion and it's not going to be like that, is it? No, it's not. And in fact, based on conversations that I've had with people who have asked the million dollar question, more typically, the person they ask it of gives the opposite answer, which is, oh, you're fantastic. There's nothing I would do differently 
than what you're doing today in order to be better. And so I think when you ask the question, you're at risk of getting one of three answers. One is you're perfect, don't change. Two is I'm so glad you asked because there's some things I think you should be doing differently. I've been wanting to talk to you about this and I haven't had a chance to, but let's talk about it. Or three, gee, I've not been asked that question before. I need to think about it a little bit. And for the first one where they tell you you're perfect or the second one where they need to think about it, that's okay. I mean, these are not conversations where you have to have the answer right at the moment. And I'd rather have a boss think about it a little bit so that I can ensure that their answer is a little bit more coherent and deeper. Schedule a follow-up meeting in a couple of weeks and say, hey, no problem. I'm thrilled that you'll think about it. Let's meet in a couple of weeks from today. And at that point, you know, I'd love to hear your answer. But you know, the likelihood of you getting your doors blown off by a boss <laughs> when you're asking for the feedback is marginal at best. So if they say you're perfect, which we know we're not perfect, we can use that same strategy to say, great, glad you think so highly of me. I'm sure I'm doing something that I could do better. Can we revisit this in a couple of weeks? Is that okay? That's exactly what you should say. Right. Always thank them for their observation. Acknowledge that nobody is perfect. And there has to be one or two things you could be doing differently in order to be better. Maybe watch me over the next month. A lot of people don't watch each other at the workplace. You know, I'm so busy, you know, Monday through Friday, Saturday and Sunday at work that, you know, I'm not spending time observing others. And so you might ask people to observe you over the next following month or observe me at a particular meeting or at a particular time of day, you know, whatever makes sense, and then provide you feedback at that time. But don't let them off the hook because that's a great way for somebody to avoid giving you potentially feedback that could be helpful. And that's maybe the most important part, Lisa, is ensuring that in these conversations with people that you are positioning it as a way to help you, right? You're not looking for destructive or mean feedback from somebody, but you want to be more effective at what you do. You know, you could be doing a couple of things differently, and it would be really helpful if you could provide me feedback, even if it might sting for a minute, because it will help. And I would deeply appreciate you taking the time to do that. And this also speaks to the idea of continuous performance evaluation as opposed to we're going to have this annual meeting that is so old school. And I hope to goodness nobody's still doing that, although I'm sure they are, where once a year and I, I call it the, you know, the, the performance evaluation ambush, you come in and they've saved up all of this junk about you. I, I was actually ambushed once years ago from a boss and it took me a really long time to recover from that because I began to dread performance evaluations because he hadn't said anything to me and he had just all the stuff he wanted to talk about and it was all negative and it was just really a terrible experience. So if you can invite that feedback on an ongoing basis, then you're really kind of closing the door to that kind of an ambush, I would think. You are. And in the world of performance feedback, we are slowly transitioning away from the model you just described, which is archaic and ineffective. And unfortunately, it took us 40 to 50 years to figure that out. But, you know, you want to get to more of a conversational relationship where you're talking with somebody on a recurring basis, not frequently, but once a quarter, twice a year, whatever frequency makes sense for you in that relationship to ensure that you're hearing from people, you know, what am I doing well so I can do more of it? And what could I do differently to be more effective? And let's just talk about it. And you know that it's working when the other person says, hey, Lisa, you've been coming to me for a few months now looking for feedback. I'd like some, you know, so can mm. you tell me some things that I can do differently to be more effective? Because I've seen you working on the feedback I've given you, and I think it's great. 
And that's when you know that you're role modeling it in a really positive way and that these recurring conversations are working. And I will put in the show notes, folks, there's two podcast episodes that I put out recently that really speak to this. And one was on how to improve your relationship with your manager. And the other one was the questions that you could ask during your one-on-ones with them to really improve the relationship. So very relevant content. I'll put both of those in here. All right. So we've got this first strategy. What's the second strategy you want to tell the listeners about? I think the second strategy might be what I consider to be the word of the decade, which is empathy mm-hmm. and the need for leaders to identify empathy as a strategic goal and not a feel-good, soft, touchy-feely type behavior in the workplace. Because if you want to achieve a goal, you need to have great relationships with the people you work with. And in order to have great relationships, you have to show empathy. And so empathy is a newer word in corporate America. It's still probably rejected in many ways, at least still in 2021, (laughs) because it sounds a little too touchy-feely. But I believe in the clients that I work with and in the stories that I hear, examples of empathy that are very impactful and helpful to ensure things continue to move forward. I was thinking while you were saying that, I'm currently listening to a series on, I think it's on, I don't know if it's Business Wars, it's one of the Wondery products that I really love. And they're ta- it's called The Enlightenment of Steve Jobs. And I had no idea that early in his career, he was a bit of a train wreck when it came to empathy. And his first go around in Apple, it was very kind of a dictatorial, almost a micromanaging kind of concept. And it kind of walks us through how with his experience with Pixar and the creatives there, he had to learn how to be more empathetic, that he couldn't treat them the same way that he could business people. And he he loosened up, he became more collaborative and more empathetic. And I think that's a, a really good example of someone who at a very high level in his career still didn't have that empathy piece and he really had to work on it. Empathy exists at all levels of all organizations amongst all people. And that's why I believe it's a strategic activity because there are people who are naturally empathetic. And when I say they're naturally empathetic, they know when and when not to use it. They're not empathetic all the time, but they know when and when not to use it. And you and I have both met and I have had clients who have hired me specifically because they wanted to demonstrate more empathy. And we might as well have been teaching the person how to do brain surgery, because for them, it was complex. This was not easy in order to do what you need to do. And it was unusual for them to to show empathy. And so we had to work on it for some time in order to make good progress. Well, kudos to them if they came to you willingly. I wonder if it was the company who said, you need to work with this individual on his empathy. But if they came to you on their own, then good for them for having that self-awareness. Yeah. One of the things I work on with clients is to help them build their self-awareness so they can self-manage more effectively. So I always love a client whose self-awareness is high enough that they know that they're not perfect and that there are some things that they need help on objectively. And, you know, in this case, in the one that I'm thinking about, you know, they did come to me on their own because they knew this is something that they wanted assistance in order to get better at. Excellent. All right. Let's do one more strategy. So I think the third strategy might be play the hand that you've been dealt. And so over the last 13 years and working with clients, people love talking about what they've experienced and how tough it is and how hard it's been and the terrible people they've worked with, you know, whatever their story might be. You know, they love talking about it. And I'm always very polite 
and I'll always listen to it. And when they're done talking, I'll ask them the question, so what are you going to do about it? And, you know, it's, it's suddenly like an epiphany, right? They've been so, so stuck thinking about the past that they've not thought about how they're going to play the hand they've been dealt. Because in some cases, you may be dealt a great hand, just like in a poker game. And in some cases, you may be dealt a poor hand, just like in a poker game. No one can predict the kind of hand that they're going to be dealt. But if you are dealt a poor hand, while you can acknowledge it's a poor hand, you also have to figure out how to play it so you can win. And so I talk in the book about ensuring that you don't fold, that you don't bluff, but you turn in a few cards, which is, you know, I correlate to taking action in order to get a better hand so that you can positively influence the workplace you're in. Sometimes people do need to fold. You know, recruitment is not a perfect art and you might make a choice where the culture is not what you thought it was or you just don't enjoy it. It's not a good fit. You've already been there a couple of years and it's not been a good experience. And I think with some self-reflection, folding and moving on to another opportunity is the right and best strategy. But more often, you know, I attempt to work with people who are wanting to take action in order to be more successful where they currently are. So this can be mitigated to a large measure by doing your homework, right? So having the conversations with the right people, doing your research, and then also the self-awareness and looking to see whether there is a match there. You can't fix it 100% of the time, as you said, but I think you can minimize the chances of you getting into a train wreck right off the bat if you do that homework and have that self-knowledge and understand if the, the fit is truly there and you're not kind of going into this with blinders on seeing what you want to see. Well, there are experts who have talked a lot about the recruitment process. To be candid, I don't talk necessarily about the recruitment process and how to ensure where you're going is the perfect fit. I talk more about the fact where one day you recognize that things are not what you thought they would be, things are not unfolding the way that you thought they would unfold, and what do you do about it? And a lot of people just are bluffing. So like the 85% of my clients who believe they could have a more positive relationship with my boss, a large number of my clients are bluffing. They're pretending everything is okay externally, but internally things are not okay. And, you know, for anybody that's bluffing that long, it's only a matter of time before they collapse because nobody can bluff for years, right? But, you know, I've had people who have worked at companies that they didn't enjoy for several years because they were not taking responsibility for their own success. They were just going along for the ride. Exactly. It's that whole thing I started the conversation with about that disempowerment of people thinking that the responsibility is on my boss. The responsibility is on the company, whatever that means, to make me happy, make me satisfied, and help me to be engaged. And, and we tend to want to abdicate all of that. And we can start and do so much of it. And I'm a huge fan of even if you decide you want to leave company A that you've been at for however long, let's get right. Let's clean things up mentally with our relationship there so that we don't take that baggage and going forward. We don't carry it with us into the next organization or even into our job search. Well, I would want any client to look back six months or a year from now and feel that they did everything they could to make the situation that they're in better. And sometimes you will, and sometimes you won't. And I'd rather you knew that you did everything you could before you make a decision versus you know, jumping out too quickly. Exactly. We are on the same page about that. 
So we're not going to share all of the nine strategies. I'm sure you want people to pick up a copy of the book, but can you kind of give us a preview of maybe some of the other things that we haven't covered? Give us a little bit of an overview and then let them know how they can get a copy. Great. So as you mentioned in the opening, Lisa, there are nine behaviors I talk about in the book. We've talked about three, positive relationship, playing the hand you've been dealt, and empathy. You know, a couple of other chapters. One is about feedback. And what we're talking about isn't that annual <laughs> nightmare conversation that happens <laughs> at a lot of companies, but you know, how to be more conversational and how to ensure that feedback you observe, whether it's positive or constructive, is delivered immediately. And that I don't wait until November when the review is coming to save it all, but that I have a conversation with you because I want to influence what you're doing. And the best way for me to influence it is by giving you feedback. I talk about pausing. Pausing is an incredibly important strategic behavior. A lot of leaders who are very knowledgeable in what they do are constantly go, 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 and others can't keep up. And so you really need to pause a little bit. And I give a great example in the book about a pause event that many of us saw that if they handled it differently, it would have had a much different outcome, but recognizing that pausing is important. And then the last one is about curiosity, right? So things like listening, curiosity, empathy, these are all important leadership behaviors that people need to demonstrate on a regular basis in order to be more effective in the workplace. And as you said in the opening, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Own Success is available anywhere online at Amazon or Barnes & Noble, or you can go to my website, excellius.com, E-X-C-E-L-L-I-U-S.com, and order the book there. Excellent, excellent. And and really, we're we're talking about a lot of those emotional intelligence things, right? So I love that corporate America is catching on to the fact that it's not just whether you have an MBA or a certain certification, you've done a certain skill, but it's about those soft skills and how important they are in leadership. And that translates to self-leadership. I had a guest on the podcast recently, and I think the topic was, if you want to lead others, you've got to lead yourself first. And so that concept of getting your own house in order how you show up in the in the workplace and in your life in order to affect positive change. Well, there are individuals who have studied emotional intelligence, and I love how you made that observation as it relates to this book, because those specialists would tell you that in order to be an effective leader, emotional intelligence is more important than IQ. That how you lead people, how you create vision, how you motivate them is more important than the technical side of what you do. The technical side is still important. I'm not saying the IQ piece is irrelevant, but more impactful is how you lead people. And so, you know, I love how you made that observation. Hallelujah that the world is waking up to that. And I, th I think that's only going to mean great things for, for corporate America, but also nonprofits. And, and certainly I spent 22 years in education. And I think we as a whole, as, as an institution, higher education has a long way to go in terms of recognizing true leadership and promoting it as opposed to this is the person with the most degrees from the most impressive universities, and they don't happen to be able to speak to another human being effectively, but, but that's not important. <laughs> I, I'm sure I'm not talking about any place I've worked, but... <laughs> no, I don't know anybody like that. All right. So you mentioned your website. Where else can listeners connect with you, find out more about you, maybe social media? Where are you at? 
Well, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook. Again, I would encourage people to go to Excelius.com. There's information about the work that I do, the books that I've written, a link to the podcast website, BeBraveAtWork.com. All the information that people might be curious about, you can find at Excelius.com. Excellent. Be brave at work, folks. I'll be sure to put that in the show notes and I'm going to check out your podcast as well, Ed. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast and I'm sure the listeners will really, this will help them to kind of reframe and hopefully take more responsibility for their own career success. I think this is a very timely topic as we navigate essentially going back to work. It feels like we're starting, for many of us, I think we're starting new jobs because it's completely different and maybe the people we're working with are completely different ones than the ones we worked with a year and a half ago or however long it was. So it's a really good time to think about how we can navigate our own success. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Lisa. I had a great time chatting with you. And you folks, you know where to find me and I will see you next week. Take care. You've been listening to The Exclusive Career Coach with Lisa Edwards, CEO of Exclusive Career Coaching. It would be great if you would rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Also, I want to be your career coach, so be sure to ask questions about your career management challenges and job search situation. Until next time.